and welcome back to Peace in Their Time, episode 53, Neon Genesis Modernization. With the Shogunate dismantled and the Emperor Meiji's team of Genro firmly in control of Japan, the task at hand became reforming the nation so it could stand on its own. Probably the most critical element in making Japan a world power, and therefore also capable of defending itself against other world powers, was its ability to close the technological and industrial gaps separating it from the West. And while you can certainly make a valid argument that maybe the rapid industrialization wasn't worth the miserable working conditions and social upheaval normal Japanese had to suffer through, it was the reforms in the decades after the Meiji Restoration that broke Japan from its quasi-colonial state and delivered it real independence in its relations with the rest of the world. Keep in mind from the last episode that the decline and fall of the shogunate resulted from external pressure causing fissures among the Japanese elites, which some then exploited to restore the emperor to prominence. The Meiji Restoration was not a revolution then of ideals, but rather a ruling class grappling with how to deal with foreign intrusions, which was something the shogunate hadn't been ignoring either. That government had seen the danger as well, and as I mentioned last week, was drawing upon foreign loans and experts to modernize. Their great sin was ineffectiveness, and Japan had slipped too far into being a source of resources to be extracted for the government to continue. So the Meiji government was not terribly different from what the shogunate had envisioned to reform itself into, and to avoid sharing the same fate, they couldn't rely on half-measures. To save Japan from becoming a colony, they'd have to get drastic. The dissolution of the daimyo and samurai was merely the first step in that process. In order to assert central authority, all the feudal structures had to be torn down. This was a similar process to what happened in Europe, but compressed into only a handful of years. While most of the world paid little notice to the distant island nation, European observers on the ground in Japan were astonished how quickly the nobility had been dismantled. Granted, many of those nobles would continue to wield influence, and the cliques of oligarchs around the emperor ran the country, but power ran through Tokyo from that point forward. And that power was for decades going to be concentrated in precious few hands. The new Meiji government was not democratic, and while it did maintain the college of ministries and departments you associate with modern government, they were ran and staffed by those who had backed the emperor in 1868, or those who were in the same circles. As the bureaucracy was expanded over the next couple of decades, staffing appointments were made by a closed circle of connected leaders in the Satsuma and Choshu factions. A lot of the countries powerful that were not in that circle were left out in the cold, which was going to be one of the driving forces towards a more democratic process later on. One problem also with this closed circle of influence was that it relied on a select clique of leaders cooperating with each other to keep everybody in line. In the first years, this was easy enough, although, as we saw with Saigo's Samurai Rebellion, there were still fissures. And as the years ticked by, the first generation of Meiji leaders started to pass away. That was devastating to the early system of oligarch government, as it needed men of esteem and authority to ensure harmony. Uh, certainly, those heroes of the Restoration had protégés and subordinates to take the reins, but those younger men lacked the standing of their elders. And while the influence of the Genro remained strong well into the 20th century, it became increasingly obvious that they could not remain the foundation of the modern Japanese state. And by the mid-1880s, public outcry had grown to the point where political reform was going to be desperately needed. Fortunately, by then, Japan had been sending numerous missions across the globe to both establish relations 
and to also observe Western modes of government to gain insight into their technical expertise. These journeys were no two-week vacations either. The members could expect to be away from their homes for months or even years at a time, sailing across oceans and riding in trains, crisscrossing continents at a breakneck pace. Participants would recall spending their days touring factory floors, attending lectures, watching government sessions, and more, sometimes all on the same day with scarcely time to eat or even bathe, and this would be normal for the duration of their trips. The most notable of those long-term visits was the Iwakura mission, headed by who else? Iwakura Tomoni. His delegation arrived in San Francisco in January 1872 and spent almost two years circling the globe cutting across the United States before sailing to Europe and then passing through the Indian Ocean on the way home. Their political efforts to renegotiate Japan's relationship with the West were rebuffed, but they were exposed to the Western industries, which left an impression on them, and therein sowed the seeds of how eventually Japan would balance their relationship with the rest of the world. Another example, and important for Japan's political development, was the example of a prominent genro named Ito Hirabumi. Ito was of the samurai class and an early student of the West in Japan. In 1863, he and a small group of fellows had actually snuck out of the country, which was still against the law at the time, and made the journey to Britain. There, he spent six months at University College London, taking in what he could of Western ways. The experience had a profound effect on him, and he returned home committed to westernizing his home. He later joined with the Restoration Movement and rose through the ranks. He returned to Europe for a year and a half in 1882 and spent most of his time observing their forms of government, hoping to mine their collective wisdom for the long-term answers Japan needed to take the next step forward and create a constitution of its own. His first hope was to emulate the example of Germany, which, yeah, might not have been a great sign to where things were headed, but to Japan the earlier Kingdom of Prussia was seen as a kind of analog. It had also unified a country divided in a very feudal manner. It had a strong army that Japan really wanted to replicate, and its political system was deferential to the monarch. Their limited democracy was seen as a plus, as even the Japanese leaders in favor of representative government wanted baby steps in that direction. He received guidance from German constitutional experts, most important of which was a man named Albert Mosia, who would actually travel to Japan later on in the 1880s to assist Ito in putting together a formal constitution. He would also travel to other areas of Europe like France and Britain, but the German example was what stuck with him. He returned to Japan in 1884 to find that events there had not stood still in his absence. In October 1881, just before Ito had left for Europe, a politician named Itagaki Taisuke formed the first incarnation of the Liberal Party of Japan. His main platform was advocating for a parliamentary body that his new political party could actually participate in. Itagaki had been another member of the samurai class and had also participated in the Meiji Restoration, and was second only to Saigo among the Restoration's heroes. However, he was among those who grew dissatisfied with the direction the government was taking, and like Saigo, he resigned his position within the Meiji government in 1873. Unlike Saigo, he did not organize a private army and instead turned towards political protest. He rapidly became a thorn in the government's side as he became a rallying leader for the nation's disaffected, and even before the formation of the Liberal Party, 
was calling for popular representation, although the emperor consistently denied this request. I do need to pause for a moment, though, and caution against describing him as an idealist, though. His motivation stemmed from the fact that he was one of those national leaders who had been left out of that closed circle I talked about earlier, and to him and many like him, a representative government was merely a tool to be used to break that circle's grip on power. Having been barred from power by existing means, he intended to change up the system to let him back in. The oligarchs recognized this, and part of the reason it took until the early 1880s for him to form an opposition party was because, in 1875, he had abandoned organizing efforts when the oligarchs offered him a new spot in the government and vague promises of an eventual elected assembly. Itagaki would resign again some months later after the sable cliques left him isolated in the government, but it was characteristic of him to ditch out when it looked like he could advance his career. And as a second note, Japanese liberalism was considerably different than its Western counterparts. It certainly sought out increased political rights, and indeed in this case they were seeking out any political rights at all, but they didn't share the same interest in free market economics as their counterparts elsewhere did. And nor were they seeking to strip the emperor of his authority either. In fact, many of their demands were addressed in language, presenting themselves as proper guardians of the emperor, and that it was the oligarchs who were undermining his authority. Which was a dangerous line to take, as the emperor was, well, an emperor. Even if he gave you representative government, if it's done with the understanding that the imperial office itself was sacrosanct and had unlimited power, it meant your democracy could be critically undermined down the road, which was eventually what happened. So, the emerging liberal movement was not seeking constitutional monarchy like, say, in the British sense. Political rights meant they could sit closer to the throne. The Liberal Party itself was initially an umbrella organization for the frustrated to press against the government in order to achieve that. And there were a lot of frustrated people. The Meiji Restoration is often looked back upon, especially from Westerners on the outside looking in, as a glorious time for Japan. But those first couple of decades were dicey for the new regime. The economic chaos of the shogunate did not magically go away once the emperor was sitting in Tokyo. There were still food shortages and unemployment to be dealt with, and the increases in taxes to fund the expanding bureaucracy provoked outrage. In the early years of the Restoration, there were over a hundred notable protests among the nation's farmers, and in the cities there was a brisk business of political newspapers and leaflets bemoaning the state of the society. A fun note, literacy was relatively high in pre-industrial Japan, so you had a lot of readers with a lot of opinions. Uh, far from being the conforming mass you might see in popular clichés, the Japanese were and are a fractious lot. Local political societies sprung up all over during the 1870s, numbering over 600 organizations in both cities and the countryside. And while the interests of each group varied, it represented a huge shift in political engagement among Japanese. Under the shogunate, life had been feudal and narrow in its scope. Now, even commoners were thinking in terms of the entire country and their place in it, not just their local communities. Enthusiasm came to a head in 1879 when a farmer submitted an article calling for a representative government and for a national petition campaign to show support for the idea. Many local societies took the initiative and did just that, and over 100,000 signatures were collected by the next year. The government steadfastly refused to accept the petition 
but the conservative oligarchs saw which way the wind was blowing, and in 1881 agreed that by the end of the decade, there would be a constitution. Which was also why Ito felt it imperative to spend a year and a half in Europe trying to figure out what kind of constitution would work for Japan, as he was working under a deadline. Acting under guidance from Iwakura, Ito's main principles were to leave the role of the prospective parliament to be merely legislative, while leaving the emperor, and hence his privy council inner circle, the role of appointing government officials to actually execute that legislation. From the start, he was determined to leave the throne in a position of supreme authority over the nation, and at least in theory even more powerful than even the autocrats in places like Germany and Russia. This is going to be very, very important to understand the eventual failure of democracy in Japan. From the start, it's going to be underpinned with the understanding that all power and legitimacy came from the monarch. Ito observed that elsewhere constitutions had been created based on a national consensus. In the case of Japan, the only consensus was around the emperor. That institution would have to serve as the foundation. After years of effort, with input coming from his European contacts, Ito was able to present a constitution in February 1889. The first part confirmed the primacy of the imperial throne, assigning the emperor control of the armed forces, the ability to call and dissolve parliament at will, modify laws, and conduct diplomacy. Now, just to explain a little here, the document wasn't calling for the emperor to rule as a full autocrat, just that the throne had theoretically limitless power. You might have noticed that the emperor Meiji himself wasn't actually doing too much actual direct ruling and had mostly rode the, the political waves around him, and at best turned down initiatives that didn't suit him. And you might be familiar with the line of thinking concerning the monarchy in the World War II era that the emperor was actually a weak leader, controlled by power brokers behind the throne. Well, that's kind of a simplistic way of looking at things. Meiji and his successors could be painted as being referees among the elites, but they were referees who decided the winners and losers. It helped that every faction scrambled over each other to sing the praises of the monarchy, and imperial favor was critical to the success of any proposed policy, so the emperor could just pick and choose pre-prepared ideas that suited him. And he didn't even need to pass public judgment, he could just indicate his will to the genro, and they'd work with what the emperor had willed. The constitution also assigned basic rights to the general population, which was all pretty humdrum. Uh, freedoms of speech and religion, right to a trial, property rights, you know the drill. Importantly, though, there was an allowance made for all these things to be suspended in national emergencies. What these kinds of emergencies were outside of wartime was kept deliberately undefined, which will be convenient for the future. The part of the document most exciting to all the reformers out there, though, was the establishment of the Diet. Diet is just another word for Parliament, and I'm just going to keep referring to it as Parliament for simplicity's sake. Here, Ito actually took a page out of the British handbook and created a two-tier parliament. The upper house was the House of Peers, the lower house the House of Representatives. The peers were equivalent to the UK's House of Lords and were appointed by the emperor from the elites. The representatives were the elected group and equivalent to the House of Commons. So, even with an allowance made for representative government, Ito still stuck a non-democratic element into the body. The new parliament's power was further restricted by keeping the office of prime minister and the cabinet separate from that body. 
1885, the various ministries were presided over by a council of oligarchs on behalf of the emperor, and after 1885 was managed by a prime minister appointed by that inner circle. Under the constitution, the prime minister and cabinet would be directly appointed by the emperor, and there would be a separate privy council composed of oligarchs that would directly advise the emperor on appointments and governing policies. So now we have multiple power centers in Japan's central government. You have a two-tiered parliament legislating, a cabinet of ministers governing, a privy council advising the monarch, and of course, the emperor himself. Oh yeah, the army and navy were there too. They didn't get up to the shenanigans they did later on, but they kept themselves separate from civilian authority, answering really only to the emperor. There was also a lot of cross-pollinization among these groups too. An oligarch could find himself as part of the council while working in a ministry and also holding a seat in the House of Peers. Early on, before the influence of political parties in the government became widespread, governance came down to interpersonal relationships and alliances. The democratic aspects of the government were kept in a very isolated position to start with. That would change, but only as the legitimacy of the elites declined over time. And political change was only part of the story in those years. There was also vast economic changes occurring as well. At the time of the Restoration, the vast majority of the nation was still pre-industrial, and the nation's export economy had been morphed into serving the West's need for resources. The few industries that the shogunate had managed to develop before being overthrown were a handful of metalworks, uh, weapons manufactories, and shipyards. So, basically all defense-oriented industries, and not exactly the basis for an expanding economy. That isn't to dismiss those industries as unimportant. They did provide an environment for industrial expertise to grow, and they were given special attention by the Meiji government in order for the nation to become militarily independent and capable of combating foreign intrusions. Which, given the colonial attitudes of the West and their recent history of violent enroachment, that was a justified concern. The government, though, would also provide initial investments in other non-military industries as well. The first sector that was developed was the textile industry. Yes, I know that making fabric and clothing doesn't sound particularly exciting, and it justly conjures depressing images of sweatshops and dangerous working conditions. Which would be accurate here. Conditions in these plants were awful, which I'll elaborate on in a moment. But if you're a pre-industrial nation looking to get your foot in the door and start any type of civilian industry, textiles are where most start out at. It's relatively easy from a technical standpoint, so workers don't need a huge amount of training. The actual machinery needed is usually readily available somewhere in the world, and with an expanding population, there's always a market for the product. The new factories would also provide much-needed experience to both the workers and management, experience that over time would allow for other industries to develop. It was a pressing issue, too, as all through the 1870s, the government invested large sums. Yet, the economic situation looked grimmer as the years ticked by. Remember how I mentioned part of the long-term missions to the West were partly about fact-finding and partly about trying to renegotiate Japan's diplomatic position? Well, the failure of the diplomatic part meant that the Japanese were still bound to the treaties made with the shogunate that opened Japan to Western goods. And oh boy, those goods were flooding in and crushing the domestic mom-and-pop-sized manufacturers. The results of all the effort were mixed, to say the least. The government had hoped their initial investments would get the industrial projects going, which would encourage businessmen to start their own factories. This didn't happen at first. 
Bottle factories started by the government weren't turning out profits as the first generation of managers had no idea how to run factories, and the workers, primarily women in textiles, usually didn't stick around long enough to pick up a lot of skills due to conditions being so poor. Faced with spiraling budget problems, the oligarchs reversed course in the early 1880s and slashed government spending across the board and jettisoned most of its interests in the non-military industries. The true industrialization of Japan was going to be done through laissez-faire economics, the results of which were much more to the oligarch's satisfaction. Businessmen started entering the textile industry in earnest after the government's exit and began efforts to modernize their factories to be as efficient and productive as humanly possible. One of the early tycoons of Japan was a man named Shibusawa Ichi, who not only equipped his factories with the most up-to-date equipment, but was also the first in the world to install his facilities with electric lights, meaning his were also the first to run a 24-hour schedule. He also started importing cotton from China, which marked Japan moving from being a source of raw materials to being a consumer of them. Throughout the 1880s and 1890s, the fortunes of Japanese industry would take off, and a new business class composed of men, like Shibusawa, would expand and diversify production just as the Meiji government had so desperately hoped for. This class would be a cutthroat lot, and would justify their accumulation of vast fortunes as merely a patriotic duty done to strengthen the nation as a whole. It's important to note this ideological underpinning at so early a stage, as while they absolutely pocketed piles of money, they dedicated their personal empires to the greater glory of the national one. And this expansion gave rise to a series of consortiums that are going to be very important to the Japanese economy all through the time period we're going to cover, the Zaibatsu. The Zaibatsu were simply put, gigantic business conglomerates. The notable big four initially were Mitsui, Sumitomo, Yasuda, and Mitsubishi. They began as family enterprises, and each managed to ingratiate themselves with the new Meiji government, securing new enterprises on the cheap. Initially, these included all sorts of operations. Mining, real estate, shipbuilding, railroads, textiles, banking, you name it, and they were involved in it. A great example of which was how Mitsubishi got going. The company was run by a businessman named Iwasaki Yataro, who was offered a fleet of modern steamships by the government at below cost in 1875, and they even threw in some subsidies to help him operate them. He jumped at the chance, and by the end of the decade, he had broken foreign dominance in shipping around Japan, and from there, he expanded his operations globally. He started an insurance company for both his and others' shipping needs. He operated the actual warehouses his ships delivered to, and established a bank that financed his own company. Everything was integrated in-house. And as the Zaibatsu collected more businesses, they increased their own ability to invest in the heavier industries like steel that had eluded Japan up to that point. By the 1900s, Japan's industries were both sustainable and growing. The dream of economic power had been achieved. But it all came at a cost, of course. The pattern of industrialization created the same impoverished living conditions that happened in the West, as well as the terrible environmental cost as well. An egregious example was the Ashio Copper Mine. Purchased by a man named Furukawa Ichibe in 1877, the mine was expanded after finding a gigantic new vein of copper, growing into the largest operation in all Asia. 11,000 workers lived around the mine, enduring the dangers of modern mining with no safety regulations. 
They had no barracks to live in and slept in open-air encampments. There were no authorities to protect the community, and mob rule was the order of the day when they were off the clock. The surrounding area also suffered, as the land was stripped bare of forest to supply the mine, which was a big problem as the mine was situated in a valley, which meant that seasonal floods from snowmelt and rains eroded the area, turning it into a muddy morass. This mixed with all the industrial runoff from the mine, which fed into the local river. Predictably, all the fish died off, but it also wrecked the land as well. Crops failed, the silkworms that were nurtured in the area all died, and the non-mining economy effectively vanished. The area's local representative to the new parliament raised their plight in late 1891, and was brushed off by the government bureaucrats, which is a good example of the ineffectualness of the early parliament. Action was only taken in 1897 after farmers marched into Tokyo and demanded change, while simultaneously the topic gained traction in the press. Furukawa was ordered to make changes to control the industrial runoff, which was carried out, but the damage was done. The area would continue to have higher than normal rates of illness due to the lingering industrial waste in the soil and water supply. And oh yeah, conditions for the actual mine workers went unaddressed as well. The factories weren't really any better, either. I mentioned that the textile industries were staffed mostly by women, with four out of five workers being female. And due to old-fashioned gender roles, these women were exploited relentlessly. Work recruiters would go into smaller, economically impoverished areas and spin young women tales of comfortable dormitories and a happy workplace. They just have to agree to a contract running between three to five years, usually. The girl and her family would usually get a portion of her salary in advance, and a paycheck every six months to a year afterwards. If that kind of sounds like joining up with an army, well, it's probably worse, actually. Interest had to be paid on that initial advance, and companies charged for room and board, and there were penalty fees if the worker underperformed or acted out of line. Many unfortunate workers found themselves owing the company for the privilege of working. Living conditions were just as unfair, with the Normal personal space in the dormitories being just six by three feet, just enough for a mat to sleep on. The food was insufficient, and sometimes a single bath would be allotted for up to 50 workers to share. Disease was rampant, and breathing difficulties resulted from textile particles choking the air of the work floors. And as you might expect from an environment with large numbers of women being held as basically prisoners, there were also countless examples of sexual abuse coming from the male management. There was little sympathy for their plight in the popular culture as well, as such women were equated with prostitutes on account of how they were used and eventually tossed aside. It was all profoundly disgusting. And while male workers didn't have to worry about that last angle, their conditions weren't much better. The newer, non-textile industries springing up didn't have much in the way of labor protections either and were just as dirty and dangerous as a working-class gig could get. The main perk that male workers had was their mobility. If conditions got too bad, or wages proved too unsustainable, they could, and did, simply look for work elsewhere. Men, too, were allowed into industries that let them pick up a lot more technical skills than what they'd get working in textiles. So that gave some small bit of leverage in their employment. But while a working-class identity started to emerge and employees were not shy about voicing their grievances, the vast majority still only made just enough to get by and found themselves in the slums of the major cities. Modernity proved to be just as rough for Japan as everyone else. 
I bring up all those examples because I don't want that human element to get lost in all this talk about Japan's amazing development. Part of the reason the movement towards representative government picked up so much steam and became unavoidable was because of all the dislocation happening across the country. But the dislocation and pace of change was having the effect the Meiji government wanted. Japan was becoming a regional power on the Western model. The problem they began to run into, though, was that as the domestic situation became more secure for them, looking abroad, they found still more problems that demanded their attention. The West hadn't gone away, and during the last decades of the 1800s, they watched the Europeans scoop up more and more of East Asia. The traditional powerhouse of the region, China, appeared incapable of resisting this tide, which left Japan with a critical decision to make. Either they could trust that their development on its own would allow them to remain independent, or strike out abroad and secure a buffer against the West's enroachment of the region. As we all know, they chose the latter course. And next week, we'll pick up with the start of Japan's empire in Asia. Join me then, and as always, thank you very much for listening.